Thank you for being here this morning. Um, I wanted to just encourage you guys with some things from my own reading. Um, before I share, I just want to, as I was going through this um, this morning, I was thinking, oh, I don't want you guys to, what I, I'm talking a lot about myself in this when I share, and I just want to make sure um, that you guys know that I'm just a beggar showing another beggar food, so I'm not trying to say, oh, look how I do my Bible study. This is so great. So I just was, wanted to share that before I share everything. So um, I was wondering how many of you guys are in Leviticus or Numbers currently in your reading plan? There's a couple people. Okay. Well, let me share something with you. Um, last week I was listening to a podcast in which two talk show hosts, one was a Catholic and one was a, or is, um, a, an Orthodox Jew. And they were having a contest about who knew the most quotes from famous dead guys. So I was very interested <laughs> right away. Um, it, was, it was fun to listen and try to see if I knew any of them. So their producer would read them a quote, and then they'd write down who they believed had said it. So one of the quotes was from Moses in Deuteronomy. And as you could probably imagine, the Orthodox Jew got that one correct. The other guy, who does seem to know a lot of scripture, was really bummed that he hadn't guessed correctly. And so then he talked about how Every year, he tries to read through the Bible, and he gets a reading plan, so he's read Genesis like a thousand times, in his own words, um, but he never makes it past Exodus. And then the producer said, many a reading plan has died on the shores of Leviticus. <laughs> so I like, had my uh, earbuds in, I just laughed out loud, because I had just finished Leviticus. So um, it was just interesting to listen to these two guys talk. They're both very intelligent, and they're both kind of self-proclaimed religious experts in their different religions, and they really do have a decent grasp of scripture, but to hear them talk about scripture outside of, um, you know, usually I hear them talking about it like in a news sort of way or a political commentary sort of way, and so I'm always like, wow, it seems like they do know a lot of scripture, but then when they're just talking about the Bible, I was like, wow, there's such a difference between hearing them talk about it, they're talking about content, that they may or may not have that great of a grasp on um, versus uh, someone that's been redeemed. Someone that um, looks at that content, that same, those same words, but clings to it like a lifeline. Like, I have to know this truth. Not just like, oh, it kind of like fits in the same, along the lines of, I know some stuff about history. I know some stuff about medicine. So anyway, it was just funny. So as much as I could understand why the producer made that comment about Leviticus, um, just having had gone through it myself, um, it made me so thankful for um, what we've been taught by our pastors and teachers, how we've been taught to think of scripture. The Bible is all breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable for us. And that includes Leviticus and Numbers. Oh my goodness, and I didn't bring my Bible up. <laughs> so go ahead and turn to, thank you, Leviticus 12. <clears throat> Uh, oh, yeah, Leviticus 12. So I wanted to <clears throat> share with you guys um, how this time, reading through Leviticus, and now I'm in Numbers, which I don't think is quite maybe as hard as Leviticus sometimes. Um, a couple of things that have really enriched my reading, um, and it's things that I've gained from Wellspring. So the first thing, or first help, that I employed this time 
reading through was just answering the two questions that Jacob Hantla gave us to ask of any scripture that we're reading. You'll probably remember these. One, what does the passage reveal about God? Just whatever I'm reading, what do I see about God here? And then secondly, what should my response be? So I have recorded in my journal um, a bunch of stuff from Leviticus of what I've seen revealed about God. And it's so neat to look back and see what a treasure that is, to see what I've been able to see about God in Leviticus. Um, and then the second practice that has really enriched this time of going through Leviticus has been just putting into practice some of the things that Scott Demarest shared with us two weeks ago when he was here. First, to just prepare my heart for coming to those truths by agreeing with God about his nature. Um, it's just been so good to stop and to think about the God who authored these books that I'm about to read, the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers. And then secondly, um, Scott was talking about how important it is to make observations and to make lots of observations before we try to run to drawing out the principle or running to make application for myself. So I wanted to share with you some of the fruit from Leviticus. So Leviticus 12, and we're not going to read this. You can just kind of use the headings in your Bible to see what these are about. So Leviticus 12, here we have this whole chapter about how to become clean after bearing a child. So in this passage, is specifically about women. Um, it says there's 33 days of purification set aside for a woman who's just delivered a baby boy. And then there's 66 days set aside for a woman to go through purification if she had a baby girl. So in those days um, of purification, the woman was said not to touch consecrated things, and she couldn't enter the sanctuary. And then chapter 13, this one is a little bit longer, and it talks about if you have a red spot, like a bright spot on your skin, or you have um, a scab, or you have a spot that looks like leprosy, or you have a spot that doesn't look like leprosy, but it may be leprosy. So there's all this examining of skin. It's um, a lot of waiting because until you knew that the skin was not like an infectious, had an infectious disease, you had to kind of be set aside. So, um, or not be with everyone, you had to be outside the camp. So then um, in this passage, it talks about how if you discover, okay, it doesn't seem like this is like an infectious skin disease, you have to have that confirmed by um, a priest who would then help you um, make a sacrifice of a bird. You could go into the, back into the camp of Israel, but you couldn't go into your tent for seven more days. After seven days, then you could go to the tabernacle, make a normal type of offering, be sprinkled with that blood, and then you're considered clean, which means you can go now and worship God with everyone else. So, okay. That's Leviticus 12 and 13. What if that's your reading for the day? Like, that's your reading plan. I'm reading Leviticus 12 and 13. On first reading, I think it could be really hard to see what we could take away from those passages. How can I even answer that first question? What does this passage reveal to me about God? Well, look back at Exodus 33. This, and this is like a little bit of a plug for the chronological reading plan. So, um, I've only done this now. This is my second time of doing the chronological, but when I came to Leviticus 12 and 13, I actually, it didn't seem like that long ago that I had read this passage in Exodus, and it was helpful. Sorry, I need to take a drink. Okay, Exodus 33:1 is God talking to Moses. He says, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, 
to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. So God's saying, I'm not going to go with you guys, because I'm probably going to, I will kill you. There's just so much rebellion and so much sin. Then Moses, in, in verse 13, or verse 12, intercedes, he prays to the Lord, and he is really begging God to have mercy on him, to show him favor. And then in verse uh, 15, he says to God, If your presence does not go up with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going up with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are up on the face of the earth? And then there's another section in verse, or chapter 34, verse 9, where he said, Please go with us. I know that people are obstinate. Please pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us at your own possession. But in verse 17 of chapter 33, God says to Moses that he will do what Moses has just asked of him. He will go up with them. And then the rest of Exodus is just an explanation of how he wants the tabernacle to be built and who, who can go into the tabernacle and what parts of the tabernacle um, different people can go into. So it ends, Exodus ends with the tabernacle being constructed and finished and the glory of the Lord filled it, which signifies God's answering their prayer. He's going to live with them. He's going to go with them into the land. So then Leviticus starts. And Leviticus just picks up with all kinds of prescriptions for offerings and for sacrifices, which I think we can probably all understand. There's, we sin against God. The Israelites would sin against God. There had to be some way to um, atone for those sins. So that's what all of Leviticus is. And then we get to these two chapters that I was talking about, you know, being cleansed from childbirth, um, having issues of skin disease. Um, it can be a little confusing because those things aren't necessarily sinful, right? It's not sinful to have an effect of having a child um, that you have to deal with. It's not a sin to develop leprosy necessarily, right? So um, that's where I started thinking, okay, so what, what does that reveal to me about God? Um, and now I need to find out what I did, <laughs> where I put that. <laughs> oh, just first of all, that he, God is set apart from all mankind, Humans tend to humanize God, and we believe that he's much more like us than he is different from us. So another truth, um, that even though leprosy and the effects of childbirth are not sinful, they are actually the result of the curse. So both childbirth and nature, the um, natural order, were both cursed due to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden by God. And our bodies bear those effects of sin. God didn't create Adam and Eve's body to develop leprosy, to um, get cancer or have diabetes. Those things are all part of God cursing the natural order, and those are, that's the effect. And the point is, one of the points, is that um, it reminds us that God hates sin. He really hates sin. And so this world, this, um, we can't find all of our joy here. He doesn't let us find our ultimate happiness and satisfaction in this world um, apart from him. And it reminds us that there is a world, a place coming where the curse um, does not exist. We have that to look forward to. And I think it was, it's interesting, as I was in those chapters, 
I actually developed something on my skin, like on my arm, and I had to go to the dermatologist and have it removed. And I remember reading this in my plan, and I was like, I would be unclean in Israel, and I would not be able to worship with other people. And I'd be doing a lot of examining and waiting. So it was just, um, just a good reminder of how um, God is so much higher than I am. He is so different from me, um, but he's also so gracious to condescend. He came and he dwelt among the Israelites. They wanted him to, but there was a certain way they had to go about living that near to God. Um, and he is so gracious to condescend and to live inside me and to live inside other believers. And I just, I can't treat him as common. That was another um, fruit of this. I can't think that I can come to him flippantly, unaware of my condition before him, or be presumptuous in the way that I come to him. Because all of life, every single aspect of my life, from having babies to having skin disease to purposely um, coming to church to worship the Lord, all of that um, needs to be truly Godward. Um, every issue of life is related to my relationship with God, just as it was for the Israelites. So that's some of the fruit from Leviticus to encourage you with. Let's go ahead and review our disciplines. Um, you can t flip over your notebooks. Let's just remind ourselves why we come to Wellspring, why this ministry exists. First of all, our purpose is here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God, all of it, so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Um, discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Discipline two, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And discipline three, ministry, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And then our, our theme verse, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Again, we're not guarding something that's perfect and pure and innocent. We are taking care of something that has the potential to sin, um, but that also has the ability to um, walk with the Lord and to please him. And so we are guarding our hearts, taking care of what's happening inside, inside of them. So um, Josh is coming today. We have him here to teach us on prayer and uh, like I said in the email this week, this is a condensed one-class version of a whole retreat that he taught in 2016, I think. I think that's what I... I looked it up. I think it was either 16 or 18. So um, all that is on the website if you want to go back and listen to those lessons. But this is a great lesson. It's really practical and really convicting, <laughs> really helpful. So Josh, come on up. Thank you, Janet. That, how sweet is it just to hear uh, the outflow of Janet's own heart shepherding and love for God's word and how she's thinking about those things. Just so helpful, so uh, thoughtful, and even just convicting. How many, how many times have I read over uh, the unclean nature of giving childbirth and just thought, man, this doesn't apply to me. 
<laughs> yeah, there's uh, really important things to see there that are great. It, it's always a joy to be with you ladies, and even what, what Janet was just getting at, the, the critical nature of knowing the Lord through his word is just evident in all of you, um, that you're here, that you want to sit under God's word. We're actually commanded after, uh, from scripture to long for God's word, to crave God's word in First Peter 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. And that's not an instruction for, for young Christians, right? Some people have thought, okay, baby Christians long for the word. No, that's actually the manner in which the Christian, in whatever stage of life they're, they're in, is to long for and desire God's word. And we know, even just pondering Psalm 119, 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to his word. And then verse 10, with all my heart I have sought you. And that's really at the root of why we want to know God's word, because we want to seek after the Lord. We want to know God. We want to know our great God. And so just thankful for you women and the way that you do that consistently, diligently uh, pursue the Lord and, and love him. As we talk about prayer this morning, uh, prayer is, is a pretty daunting topic for many of us. And I don't know, I think it was 2016, I think, um, and, and I've, I've kind of been assigned the task of teaching on prayer since, and I think that's the way of the Lord um, addressing me <laughs> and helping grow me in, in an area that I need to be addressed consistently, because it's just, it's easy to get lazy in your prayer life, it's easy to become task-oriented and to kind of go through the routine or go through the list, or even just neglect it altogether, and yet the reality is that prayer is one of the most significant parts of the Christian life. We're communicating with our God. And the very fact that we can pray is an incredible gift from the Lord brought about through Jesus as our perfect mediator to where we can approach the throne of grace. And if you think about the fact that we can actually at any moment communicate with the God of the universe, the one who, who spoke, and as we've heard John point out, John Anderson, um, that which didn't exist yielded to the word of God and came into existence. It's truly a, a wonderful, magnificent thing. And the reality is, is that what we think about prayer, how we live our prayer life, reveals much of who we are. Robert Murray McShane says, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. It's easy to put up a front when everybody's looking to our spiritual condition. And yet what we actually believe will be reflected on who we are in private. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of one's true spiritual condition. There's nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Ouch. Ultimately, therefore, one discovers the real condition of his spiritual life when he examines himself in private, when he is alone with God. And have we not all known what it is to find that somehow we have less to say to God when we are alone than when we are in the presence of others? It should not be so, but it often is. So that it is when we have left the realm of activities and outward dealings with other people and are alone with God, that we really know where we stand in a spiritual sense. 
if you find great joy in talking with others about the greatness of God, but neglect to talk with God about the greatness of God, that is a sign that there is hypocrisy in your life that needs to be rooted out. Oswald Chambers, one of my favorite quotes, says, prayer does not fit us for the greater work, prayer is the greater work. And I think there's oftentimes a temptation to think about prayer as a preliminary that we need to get through to move on to the things that really matter. And we need to be confronted with the reality that it was a supernatural work to save each one of us, to bring us into the church, to bring us into the body of Christ. And we must recognize, as the church, we're participating in a supernatural work. And so why would we think that we could do anything apart from the supernatural enablement of God? And so we should pray. We must pray. What we're going to talk about this morning is cultivating a life of prayer. And this is important to realize that for, for most, prayer is not something that just flows out naturally. We, we actually have to cultivate this discipline. We have to be intentional in what we pray, when we pray, how we pray. Prayer is a discipline. It's highly unlikely. It could be so, but most of us would probably say that our prayer lives have not yet arrived that there's room for growth. And I know for many, prayer can be a daunting topic. It can be intimidating or disheartening at times even. The reality is, is that prayer should be one of the most sweet, precious, intimate, encouraging, emboldening, comforting practices in the Christian life. And at the same time, it can be somewhat confusing at times. What exactly should we pray for in life's various circumstances? I don't want to mess up my prayers. I don't want to pray for the wrong things. Prayer at time can feel pointless. It can feel lonely. I've, I've prayed so much and I don't perceive any change. Does God really hear? There's times where we might even echo with the psalmist. Why have you forsaken me? At the same time, prayer is a beautiful gift from God where we can draw near to our wonderful Lord. God is faithful. And it's important for each of us to evaluate and consider how we actually view prayer. What part should it play in our life? If you didn't pray for a day or for a week or for a month, would you feel it? Would you notice a difference? What differences would you notice? Hopefully each of us would. John Piper says this, he says, One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove in the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Uh, maybe not all of you are on social media in some way, but I'm sure there's something in each one of our lives that we find time for, plenty of time for, that would be means of, of conviction when thinking about fighting for time to pray. Now, before we feel too convicted, okay, we don't want to get too far too fast, before you too, feel too convicted or, or too discouraged in regards to, to prayer, um, it's important to realize that the disciples needed instruction on prayer. <laughs> if you find yourself going, oh man, I've got so much to grow. You know, the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? 
And so if you've wondered, how should I pray? I need to grow in prayer. I need to make prayer a priority. You're not alone. We've all been there. And I hope that this morning will be an aid to help each of us, regardless of where we're at in our prayer life, just to be further fortified in our prayer life before the Lord, to grow, to be challenged, to be sharpened. So we're going to start this morning looking at prayer and its purpose. Then we're going to look at a, a pattern of prayer from Colossians. And then I want to talk a little bit about different hindrances to a life of prayer and different aids to a life of prayer. That's where we're going this morning. Where we are right now is I want to talk about prayer and its purpose. Prayer and its purpose. And you should have a quote in your folder by John Bunyan, not related to Paul Bunyan, as I've accidentally referred to him as in the past. Uh, Paul, uh, no, no. <laughs> John Bunyan. <laughs> get that it's either paul or john one of those john bunyan says this about prayer and i think this encapsulates it's it's hard to summarize anything in a phrase but i love how he summarizes prayer is everybody there in their outline julie said i got the award for the longest outline i said it's most detailed outline so, uh the quote by john bunyan prayer is a sincere sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to his word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. We could probably spend an hour just talking about that summary of prayer. It is so rich and so helpful when we think about the fact that prayer is sincere and sensible, and yet you, you actually are permitted to pour out your heart to God. So many of the Psalms, we see a sensibility, a sincerity, and yet just an outpouring of where the psalmist's heart is before God. Through Christ, it's, in, it's through Christ that we can do this in the strength of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. The ultimate purpose of prayer is this. It's, it's the glory of God. That's what we should seek. First and foremost, when we go to God in prayer, we should not be thinking primarily about ourselves and what we want. We should have an insatiable desire for God to be glorified. That's the call of the Christian life. Everything that we're to be about is for the glory of God, and prayer is no different. It's not that we live our lives for God's glory, and prayer is when we get to make all of our requests known for how God needs to submit himself to our will. Actually, prayer is most uh, realized in God's intention for us when we are approaching him with a desire for his will, for his glory. And I think that's oftentimes misunderstood by many where prayer is a presentation of God for him to bend his will to ours. And prayer is much more useful in the Christian's life when it is an expression of us bending our will to God's. And there's a way to make your requests known to God and be wholly subject to his will. Jesus is the perfect example of this. In the Garden of Gethsemane. In a very real emotional, intense way, so much so that in anticipation of the cup that he would bear, he's sweating blood and he prays, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. 
you want to talk about a sincere outpouring of the heart before God, and yet the trump card that he puts at the end that expresses where his heart truly is before the Lord and the submission, submission that he has before the Father, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is ultimately about the glory of God. John fourteen thirteen expresses Jesus' commitment to the glory of God, even in his answering of prayers. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus was committed to the glory of God, inasmuch that his answering of requests to him were for the purpose of glorifying God. So now that we've looked briefly at, at what prayer is and its purpose, let's take a little bit of time and let's look at Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians 1. This is just a, an example. I, I love this example. It's one of my favorite in Scripture regarding prayer. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae. So turn to Colossians 1. We're transitioning to a model of prayer, and we're going to make observations from Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, for the Colossians. In Colossians 1, we see Paul's prayer regarding the believers in Colossae, and he's going to start thanking God for things that he sees or has heard of in them. It's important to understand everything that is worthy of praise or that is good only comes from God. So God is the one Paul gives thanks to. If, if anything comes from any one of us that is good before the Lord, it is because God has put it there. And this should have a humbling effect upon us that should fill our hearts with thankfulness. First of all, that God would even extend that kind of kindness to us to allow us to do something that would glorify him or benefit others. It helps us think less of ourselves where there is God's work in us. It protects us from pride and arrogance to recognize that these things that are flowing out of us, that God is using our gifts from God. God is faithful. He is so kind. So let's start. We're going to look at Paul's thanksgiving, things that he gives thanks for in verses 3 through 8. And then we'll look at his petitions in the following verses after that. So read with me first Colossians 1 verses 3 through 8. Where we'll read through that whole section and then we'll kind of break it down bit by bit and look at the things that Paul gives thanks for. So starting in verse 3, Paul says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Here we see Paul's thanksgiving, and thanksgiving is actually something we're called to exhibit all the time. Even thinking through 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, the call is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
when we think about our prayer life, we cannot separate a heart of thanksgiving from it. We're actually called to give thanks in everything. And here we actually see the instruction in 1 Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. And right after that, in everything, give thanks to God. This is God's will for you. This is so helpful for us to ponder. And this is so helpful for us to cultivate in the Christian life, a heart of thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving do for the believer? Well, it humbles you. It slows you down. It helps you recognize what you're experiencing right now is beyond goodness that you deserve. Where there's a lack of thanksgiving, resentment, quarrels, contention, disunity, entitlement, fertile soil for bitterness to grow up because the expectations that you've held on to are not being met. And so now you bring demands of what you think others should be and do for you. But a heart of thanksgiving counters all of those. It, it expresses trust and humility and submission. Thanksgiving humbles us. It calibrates our thinking to recognize that whatever we are navigating, we are under the grace of God, and he's trustworthy. So, Paul gives thanks, and we're going to highlight these things for which he gives thanks. First, in verse 4, we see that he gives thanks for the Colossians' faith in Jesus. That's number one, faith in Jesus. I believe your blank is Jesus there. Everybody with me? So far, perfect. Faith in Jesus 4.8. Look at it again. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So he says at the beginning of verse 3, we give thanks to God. And then he's going to spell out the things for which he gives thanks. And first he says, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. This is really the most exciting report that somebody could hear, right? There's nothing else that you could hear about something, somebody that has a greater bearing on their eternal state than whether or not they have faith in Jesus. And he's hearing a report that the Colossians have faith in Jesus. They have faith in Christ Jesus. Ever since the moment he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus, he gives thanks to God. Paul, Paul had never met these believers, most of them personally. He hasn't visited them yet, but the report has come of their trusting confidence in Christ. And we know this is where the gospel starts, right? It is faith in Jesus. And the believers in Colossae, they had this faith, this genuine faith in Christ. And, and it's important to realize that it's not only that they had faith, but they had faith in Messiah Jesus. And the, the object, it was not only the sincerity of their faith, but the object of their faith was placed in the right thing, in Christ. You could have faith in something or someone and have the strongest faith, and that faith won't save you because it's not in the right object. It's not in the right person. And it's better to have a small faith in Jesus than the biggest faith possible in the wrong person or thing. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have a gospel. And if you don't have faith in Jesus, you don't have salvation. And so the fact that they have faith in Christ Jesus is truly one of the most uh, exhilarating realities, one of the most compelling reports that he could hear. And so he gives thanks to God for their faith in Christ Jesus. And just by, by way of observation, 
it's, it's important to realize, because relationships can be hard, but if you're praying for another believer, you are never at a loss of something to give thanks for. So even in moments of, of struggle and contention or discord, you can actually stop and pray for an individual. And if your heart is just fighting bitterness, fighting bitterness, if nothing else, you can go, oh, Lord, thank you that they love you. Thank you that they have faith in you. And, and do that and just watch what the Lord does to a hard heart. When you slow down and you realize, wow, this person loves the Lord. The Lord loves this person. Okay, where's my heart right now? Where's my disposition towards this individual? So the first thing for which Paul gives thanks is regarding the Colossians is their faith in Jesus. And then number two, he gives thanks for their love for the saints. <coughs> Excuse me. For their love for the saints. We see that in the second half of verse four. Number one was their faith in Jesus. Number two, love for their saints. Look at the second half of verse four with me. And the love which you have for all the saints. So he's giving thanks for this. And this is the, the next and most natural manifestation of the gospel in their lives. Not only do they have faith in Christ Jesus, but they also love the saints. These are a package deal. If you're a believer, you have faith in Christ. And if you're a believer, you love the brethren. That's just what happens. That's the work that Christ does in the believer's heart. It's a love for one another. There are results of genuine faith. Faith in Jesus produces specific things. The gospel takes effect in someone's heart by the gift of faith from God. And one of the first things that faith in Jesus produces is love for the brethren. Love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35 Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. One of the greatest ways you can guard yourself from sin is by cultivating and strengthening this love for others. Selfishness, greed, covetousness, anger, Bitterness, discontentment, all can be set aside by love for others above yourself. And notice how Paul thanks God for their love for all the saints. This isn't find a few believers that you love. <laughs> That's not what's happening in the believers in Colossae. The outpouring of their faith in Christ is actually a love for all the saints. Now surely that'll be expressed differently, right? We, we're not called to be best friends and the closest proximity with every single person in the church. That would be impossible. We will have people that we're knit together with and we have closer proximity and relationships to. But what God calls us to in love, the, the expression of love that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, that's to be exhibited, that's to be demonstrated with, without... Uh, Partiality. Thank you. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Good job. Thank you, Tanya. <laughs> without partiality. Yeah, without partiality. I'll add that to my notes next time. <laughs> Thank you. You knew where I was going. Yep. Next, number three, the third thing that Paul gives thanks for that we see here is the Colossian believers' hope in heaven. Their hope 
in heaven. Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel comes with a, a security of eternity. If you're a believer, you have assurance of salvation as you're walking in obedience to Christ. You actually have a sure hope in eternity. What a gift from the Lord. And Paul is giving thanks for this, for the fact that they have this hope in heaven, that they're benefiting in this way to be able to navigate this world with a hope in heaven. Believers have a special hope, a hope that is worthy of thanking God for. There's a hope laid up for believers or reserved or in store for the believer in heaven. And so a Christian can endure hardships. A Christian can endure persecution. A Christian can persevere through trials, press on in tragedy, all because Christians have a, a hope in something outside of ourselves and a hope in something beyond this world. And just think about those in Ukraine and Russia right now who are having to navigate intense uncertainty, intense hostility. If all they had to hope in was the outcome of the conflict that is taking place right now, what a, what a tragic spot to be. But to navigate the hardships that they're enduring right now with the hope in heaven for the believers that are there, that the conflict now will not be forever, that a sovereign God is working in the midst of these tragic events to bring about their conformity into Christ's likeness, to prepare them for eternity. What a gift. Whatever trials or struggles or hardships that we face in this life, they're momentary. In contrast, they're light. <laughs> what God is saying, what Paul is saying here, is not that trials are easy or that they're insignificant, but there's a contrast. That whatever the genuine intensity of your trials and hardships are, in contrast to what is in store for the believer in eternity, they're momentary and light. It's not a, a statement about how easy trials are now. It's a statement about how wonderful eternity is for the believer. That brings the trials and hardships of this light into proper context. The hope of heaven. What a gift that we can thank God for. At any point in time, we could pause and we can thank God for this reality for believers, fellow believers, and we absolutely have the freedom as we observe this model to thank God for that gift that he's given us. Thank you for the hope in heaven. Number four. Next, we see Paul give thanks for growth in fruit. For growth in fruit. They're bearing fruit. Look at verse six. So this word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Here we see that the gospel produces fruit, both in personal transformation of individuals and in the corporate growth of the church. Disciples growing more disciples. Look at verse 6. He says it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing 
even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God. They are growing, they are maturing, they are producing fruit that's impacting one another and building up God's work in the church. The gospel not only saves individuals, but it changes their life and it produces fruit. Paul here is looking for evidences of the gospel playing itself out in the life of the Colossians, and he can actually see it. The work of the gospel is expressing itself tangibly in fruitfulness, in in greater holiness. This fruit, which is pleasing to God, is manifesting itself in the believers in Colossae. It's constantly bearing fruit. It's increasing. It's been doing that since the time they heard of this truth in the gospel. Number five, as we're working through here, this is the last expression of thankfulness that Paul makes on behalf of the believers in Colossians. And here I I summarized it as this, authentication from leaders. Leaders is your blank for number five. Anybody lost on the outline? Got all perfect? Great. So number five, authentication from leaders. Now listen, salvation is only by the grace of God, and it is ultimately only the work of God, and ultimately only God knows the heart. Yet God uses human humans as channels of his grace for individuals. Epaphras brought the good news of the, Glos- of the gospel to the Colossians. They learned it from him. He was their mentor in the faith. He was Paul's representative and and fellow slave of Christ. He was a faithful leader, and he testified of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. Look at verses 7 and 8. And in fact, even just read the last part of verse 6. Since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow slave or bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. And that's where we see that last part there is the authentication from their leader. Epaphras is a spiritual leader for them. He brought the gospel to them. He he is believed by many to be the, the pastor of the church in Colossians. And he's caring for them. And then here he's testifying of their love in the spirit. He's giving a report where he's saying, hey, What I'm seeing is true with what they're saying. There's an authentication here among their leaders, from Epaphras. He was a faithful leader, and he testified of the Colossians' love in the Spirit. The Colossians' leader authenticated their faith. He asserted it as true, as genuine. And this is definitely something that the gospel produces and something to give thanks to God for. In order to have an authentication like this from leaders, however... You actually have to have leaders in your life. And that's God's design for the church, that disciples would make other disciples, that there would be leadership within the church, that there would be overseers to care for the flock, to shepherd the flock. This is definitely something the gospel produces, and it is producing it here in the life of the Colossians. God has a design for his people, and it's that everyone is under authority. We are all under authority, right? Whose authority are sheep in the church under? The shepherds. Whose authority are shepherds under? What's that? The chief shepherd, yes. And there's a layer under 
Christ that elders are under, under authority as well? Each other. I'm an elder. I'm still a sheep. Even my eldering is submitted to the collective wisdom and care of the rest of the elders. They are my elders. We're all under authority. Consider this in your participation in the body of Christ. Consider this in your participation in this church. I think you'll actually be encouraged by this consideration. Uh, just by the very fact that you're here <laughs> is, is a great expression of your desire to be close to others. But do you have people in your life who can testify to these things in you? Is, is your proximity to others in the body of Christ that where somebody could actually sincerely pray these same virtues about you? Have you opened the door to allow others to speak into your life this way? Or have you built up contingencies? Someone must treat me the right way or pursue me the right way. They must articulate things just as I expect them to articulate them. They must confront me the right way at the right time in the right manner. That's when I'll allow people close to me to speak into areas of weakness or strength or where I need to grow. Do you place unbiblical contingencies on your relationships before you're willing to do what God calls us to do in being connected to one another? And I understand this may be uncomfortable or difficult. I, I get that, especially if you've been hurt in the past by individuals within the church that maybe you were vulnerable with or shared intimate details about your life and maybe their care for you was not good. That happens. And yet there's no expression in scripture where we're called to distance ourselves from the body because someone didn't function right in the church around us we actually are called to still trust the lord in that he'll be faithful he'll sustain us and even though it's uncomfortable or difficult we, we need to do what is right before the lord Ultimately, it's not a decision of the trustworthiness of those around you. It's a decision of whether or not you choose to believe God. That's sobering and it's hard. I, I don't say it flippantly as, as if it's easy, but it is right. There's a book that uh, Caleb loved that we read frequently in our home, and it had one of the best lines in any book that I've read, children's book that I've read. Uh, and we all just cracked up. We thought it was the funniest thing. Maybe it was just a moment. Maybe it was just for us. But the book is called Frogs, uh, Frog on a Log. And the, the part of the book that we would read says parrots. Okay, they tried to rhyme. All right. So bear with it. It's, it's, it's a sweet book. But man, they didn't get it all right. Parrots sit on carrots. Lions sit on irons. The frog says that. And, and then the frog says, so this is frog is talking, and they're making these rhymes, and the rhyme goes, parrots sit on carrots, lions sit on irons. And the frog says, that doesn't sound very comfortable. And then the cat in the story says, and this is in the book, it's not about being comfortable, it's about doing the right thing. <laughs> and I guess the right thing is for lions to sit on irons because they <laughs> rhyme. But that's beside the point. But the, the refrain in our home became it's not about being comfortable it's about doing the right thing that was the point that was the point they made a stretch on i guess lion how do you it's a tough one to rhyme with <laughs> good thing it wasn't fruits then it got to orange it would be really difficult but but yeah it's not about being comfortable 
that's not, that's not what God is necessarily interested in, that we always do what's easy or what comes most naturally. It's about doing the right thing before God. And the right thing before God is that we be close, that we be connected, that we have proximity with one another, with those around us, with our, with our church leaders, um, to be able to, to speak into our lives and care for us spiritually. And again, the fact that you are here is a, a huge testimony of your desire to be connected, to be plugged in, to have close association with one another. And that's something that as one who uh, has been at this church from the begin- beginning, and really as a, as a teenager, a, a late teenager, uh, part of this church plant, growing up in the church, what I have just appreciated and loved so much is that the leaders actually want to be close to me. Why? Well, because they love the Lord, and they want to shepherd, and they want to serve, and they want to love, and they want to care, and uh, the elders of this church want to be available. They want to be accessible to the sheep. They want to be involved in the lives of, of those who are in this body, and the, the godly saints, the, the lovely women that God has grown and matured in this church, they want to be near and, and care and be an encouragement and a blessing to the younger women in this church as well, and it's just a a wonderful, beautiful evidence of God's grace and God's working in this church, the kind of reciprocal care that takes place in a Ephesians 4 manner where the body is connected and in love, functioning according to their own giftedness for the building up of the saints. And we just are so blessed to see the way that that transpires in this church. God will never fail us in his design. We can just trust him. Things may not always be easy, but his promise to be there for us, to comfort us in our affliction, to conform us more to Christ's likeness, he, he will be faithful to those things. Small groups, if you're at a small group once a month, um, that will impact what degree those around you can affirm the evidences of God's work in your life. If you're at small group once every other month, that will affect it. If you're at small group every week, that will affect it. Just thinking about how our participation and how, how our priorities of body life impacts even our ability to pray and how others can pray for us is something we should ponder. So a question for all of us to consider is, could, could someone pray this prayer giving thanks to God in regards to you? Uh, do you think about these types of things in your prayers for others and thank God and praise God for these things in others? Obviously, this isn't a command in this passage that every time we pray, we must do these things. But it's interesting to observe the outpouring of Paul's heart for a church that he hasn't even met most of the individuals there. And this is what's on his mind and and on his heart. We're going to transition now. We're going to look at Paul's petitions. And we see those in verses 9 through 14. 9 through 14. Paul sets forth four components of his prayer for the Colossians. These are his petitions for them. Let's look at verses 9 and 14. We'll do the same thing. We'll read those verses, and then we'll kind of backtrack and work our way through this and look at the the four things that he presents as petitions. So verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask. There's where he's presenting his petitions. This is what he's praying for. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience 
joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First, Paul prays for their thinking. Number one, their thinking. We see that in verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, these are things that root in the mind. They root in the mind in regards to your thinking, that they would have all knowledge and that they would have supernatural insight from God to be able to take what they know and apply it appropriately within the context that they find themselves. To be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. To be filled here is the same language that would be used for a sail on a sailboat having wind capture it and move along that sailboat as it's pressed forward. And so when he talks about being filled, it's that kind of filling, a, a filling of a sail that catapults you forward in these virtues. And so he's praying that they would be filled with knowledge and knowledge of the will of God, that they would understand God's word, that they would know his truth, that they would understand his desire for them and have spiritual wisdom and understanding as to how to live in light of these things. We need to know God's truth, how to apply God's word, what to do with it, and why and how. This is his prayer. This, this is really a, a call for them to abandon their own thoughts, their own wisdom, their own emotional bents, and to ground themselves on what is true from God's word and respond in kind. Next, number two. He prays for their decisions, for their decisions. Look at verse 10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I want you to have right thinking so that you can have right living. I want you to understand what is true about God and his desire for you and how to navigate those things so that then you can walk in accordance to those things, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what is a manner of walking that is worthy of the Lord? Well, it's, it's one that pleases him in all respects. It bears fruit in every good work, and it increases in the knowledge of God. Paul says to, to please him in all respects, to bear fruit in every good work. This is pretty intense. This is a high call that he's praying for. He's not praying for low-hanging fruit here. This is praying big prayers to a big God. Paul prays that they would make the right decision and the best decision in every way. The decisions that will bring about the most glory to God and the most spiritual good in every choice. And what we find is that sometimes it's not so much about the indecision as end decision, not indecision, end the final decision that we come to. It's not so much about that, but it's simply how are we trusting God moment by moment in the process? And that's what he prays for. That moment by moment, in every respect, they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Have you ever been faced with a, a monumental decision in front of you that, that you had to make and you find yourself just really dwelling on wh what should I do? 
Should I do this or should I do this? And maybe you find anxiety creeping up in your heart and uncertainty and fears. You're going, man, all I want to do is please the Lord with this decision, and I'm a wreck. Then you go back and go, oh, wait, wait. Okay, the decision, I can trust the Lord bringing clarity there. What is trusting him right now in this moment look like? I'm going to pray. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to seek counsel. I'm going to be faithful to ponder the implications. And then you find there's actually incredible joy in the midst of this significant decision that you might be navigating. You would just walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you would please him in all respects, that you would bear fruit, and that that would increase in your knowledge of God. Number three, Paul's petition is for steadfastness. Steadfastness. We see this in verse 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. What a wonderful thought. How, how often do we try to navigate things in our own power? And Paul's prayer is that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Have you ever felt, man, I'm just really faint-hearted in my battle against this sin to remain diligent. I keep failing. I'm never going to get it right. We actually can go to the God of all creation. We can petition for his divine power that we would be strengthened according to his glorious might. And we can have a confidence in this prayer that he will actually do it for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And he says, Joy joyously giving thanks to the Father. Steadfastness. What is it to be steadfast? It's to remain under a difficult circumstance. Simply to get out of trials is not an expression of steadfastness. Actually, in order to be steadfast, there's the reality that you are remaining diligent under hardship, under difficulty. Steadfast, to remain under a difficult circumstance. Patience. This is an emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances that you endure. There's contentment when things aren't going the way that you desire. You stay with it. You don't give up. You're steadfast. You don't, and, and listen, you don't need steadfastness or endurance. You don't need patience if everything is easy. And Paul just has an understanding of this, that, that life is not perpetually easy. There are trials, there are hardships, there are persecutions that come upon the believer. Life is hard. And yet the Lord grants steadfastness to remain under a difficult circumstance. Patience, emotional quietness in the face of unfavorable circumstances where you endure and you continue to glorify God, you continue to trust him. And what's truly amazing is what he has told us he is pleased to do in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those difficulties, which is to make us more like his son. And that's just worth it. It's always worth it. Anything that the Lord would bring across your path, anything that the Lord would bring upon your path, he has told the believer he will use to make you more like Christ I think that just circles around to that hope that we have in him. His faithfulness, his goodness, his trustworthiness, where we don't remain steadfast, where we don't remain patient, it's, just, it's an expression of a lack of faith. That we don't believe God is true to what he says, who he is. 
So he prays for their steadfastness. I think it's just important to realize I don't think spiritual steadfastness is something we can conjure up on our own. We need this divine power. And then lastly, number four, I, I summarized it as worldview. He prays for their worldview. I don't know if that's the best word, but it's the best I could come up with. We see this in verses 12 through 14. And uh, I'll kind of explain why I summarized it as, as worldview. He says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The reason why I say he's praying for their worldview is because he really highlights the fact that they're citizens of a kingdom, not of this world. Uh, that he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will establish his throne on this earth. Jesus will reign, and we are currently a part of that future reality that will be expressed one day in a very literal sense. And so as we navigate life's trials and difficulties, right, this is on the heels of him talking about remaining steadfast in patience, and as we navigate the difficulties and trials of this life to realize that what we have in Christ is far more than any moment-by-moment difficulty of this world, but what we've received is a citizenship, not of this world, but of heaven, a citizenship with the, the kingdom that's to be realized in Christ when he returns, that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness, that we have redemption, that we have the forgiveness of these sins. Listen, if that's at the forefront of your mind, how you navigate this world will be radically impacted. And even as Janet was saying, just thinking about how closely are we tied to this world. Well, if we're thinking along these lines, we will be tied much more loosely to this world and much more tightly to the citizenship that we have in Christ. This world isn't it. As bad and as hard as it may get for us on this earth, Paul compares the difficulties of this world with eternity and their passing and momentary, as we said before. This is his worldview, a, a worldview that's fixed beyond something beyond this world. What a gift is Christ. What, is, what a gift is our salvation. What a gift is our citizenship. Now, this pattern of prayer is hopefully helpful in thinking through some things to pray about, some things to thank God for, some things to cultivate. Uh, I think it would do each one of us well to both pray these types of prayers for each other, but also to look at this list and go, Lord, make me this kind of person. This is what God esteems in his children. This is what God longs for in his children. Now, as we ponder this, this is a pattern of prayer. This is something that we can view as an example. I want to talk a little bit about hindrances to a life of prayer. What are some obstacles that we might face in just simply trying to cultivate diligence in prayer? So we're on Roman numeral number three now, hindrances to a life of dependent prayer. I lost track of what time I started and what time I'm supposed to be done. Now? Perfect. We'll wrap up with just a few last points. Okay. No. Okay. Number one is a lack of belief. Lack of belief. What's a hindrance to a life of prayer? 
a lack of faith. We must believe that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We see that in Hebrews 11.6. We must believe that God is there and interested in our prayers. He wants us to pray. He wants us to draw near to him. James 4.8 is an expression of that. Draw near to me, I will draw near to you. We must understand that his answer may not be what we want, when we want it, or how we expect it, but his ways are always best. Psalm 18.30 As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge for him. If he's not answering our prayer the way that we want, that's good. <laughs> because it's an expression of his wisdom and his care for us. Lack of belief is a hindrance to prayer. A lack of persistence. We live in a world where we get things quick. We can order Uber to deliver us meals, and we can see what the wait time is and then make a decision. We post something online, and we can immediately go back and see how many likes we have. We order something on Amazon. A drone can drop it off in a matter of hours. Uh, we get what we want when we want it. And sometimes, oftentimes, the best thing for us before the Lord is not to get what we want when we want it, but to be forced to moment by moment trust him and trust ourselves to him. And so persistence, to, to be faithful, to pray for God, to trust God, that draws us to him in regular communion with him as we recognize our neediness for him. Lack of preparedness. Lack of preparedness. Sometimes we, we don't pray the way that we ought simply because we just don't plan or we don't prepare. Uh, some of you might have extremely detailed lists with meal plans for the week. And when you go to the grocery store, you know exactly what you need to buy. And you're probably incredibly efficient and get in and get out and have everything organized and good to go. Some of you, some of us, I might like to go to Costco when I'm hungry. <laughs> and a cart and a half later of all the things that I eat vicariously through my children that <laughs> you eat this I'm not going to eat that um, you know are in the cart well same with our prayer life if we sit down and go okay I'm going to pray this, I'm going to really get serious about prayer uh, what should I pray for um, uh, help today to be great amen <laughs> you know it's just going to impact how we pray if we aren't thoughtful if we don't have a plan come up with a plan I'm going to pray for these people these days. I'm going to pray these passages these days. I'm going to pray for these virtues these days. Try different things. Be creative. Make it a priority. In contrast to hindrances, there are aids to a life dependent on prayer. What are some aids? First, just a readiness. Letter A, readiness. So this is Roman numeral four. Aids to a life dependent upon prayer. A readiness to pray. Pray at all times in the spirit, Ephesians 6.18 says. There's just a great readiness demonstrated, applied there, implied there. It seems that we're often more ready to talk about praying for others than actually praying for others, right? In the Christian lingo, it's, oh, I'll, I'll pray for you in that. Anything I can pray for? Yeah, this is, oh, great, okay, I'll pray for you. With really good intentions. And then we don't write it down, we don't make reference, and, you know, we, for, we forget. Be ready. Have a plan. Where can you take notes on your phone and write down prayer requests? Pray with somebody in the moment. Pray for yourself in the moment. Be ready. Devotion and alertness in prayer. Devotion and alertness. Your blank there is alertness. It's letter B. 
alertness in prayer. Colossians 4.2. Just a couple chapters over from what we were looking at. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Again, we see that emphasis on thanksgiving. Oftentimes we're self-reliant and we need to be spiritually uh, desperate. Letter C. We need to cultivate a submissiveness and a surrender to the Lord. We need to pray what is consistent with what we know about God and His will. We must seek to be obedient to God and what He says. There's to be a yieldedness to the Lord, a trusting in the Lord and His Spirit to work in us. There should be a putting away from selfishness. God, I really want this, but more than that, I trust you. I want what glorifies you. I want what pleases you. Or even, Lord, I really want this, but I want your body to be blessed. Make me holy in a way that benefits your bride. Letter D. There needs to be, not necessarily exclusively, but a greater desire for spiritual concern than physical concern. It is good to pray for physical healing, for the removal of affliction. Uh, that can't be where it ends. Lord, help help me feel better. Help help my back not hurt my cough to go away. Th- those aren't bad prayers. Those aren't sinful prayers. Those can be really sweet, humble, dependent prayers upon the Lord. But what we should be after is more than physical changes to things in us and around us. Behind each of those requests should be a desire for God's glory and our holiness. Spiritual concern. Uh, lastly, as we wrap up, just want to draw attention to the appendix. I think you guys have this in your outline. One of the, the homework questions is to, to pick a passage and pray through a passage. This is something that I did when you're thinking about cultivating a life of prayer, what to pray for. Uh, years ago, my first semester in seminary, I took a prayer class, and the assignment for most of the class was really that I had to write a couple papers, do an interview, write a paper, read a couple books. But really the, the bulk of the work was I was assigned to pray for an hour a day gasp (gasps) an hour okay if i split this into five minute increments (laughs) how many times 12 times a day or uh i couldn't no it it was it had to be all at once you couldn't break it up that was part of the part of the deal and and so i went into that um to my shame i mean it it seems like it shouldn't be hard to pray for an hour it was for me uh at first to to think okay what i pray for i mean i literally am like sitting there peeking at my clock (laughs) 12 minutes. Oh, what am I afraid of? And, and then I made a plan. <laughs> and I worked through that plan. And one of the things was to pray through a passage of scripture every day and just to incorporate that. I tell you what, that just that practice of learning how to think through praying uh, a passage of scripture uh, probably impacted my prayer life more than anything else. It was so wonderful because it brought my prayer life into just a desire for me to align myself with God's will, and God's, God's truth, God's word. And so one of the homework assignments is to pray through a passage. And I just want to walk through this for clarity's sake. Um, Do you guys have that? Appendix A? So resource for praying scripture. Passage 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able 
but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, one of the things that I imagine might make praying through a passage of scripture incredibly intimidating, especially if you've been at Grace Long, um, is not wanting to pray the passage wrong, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, if you go to that, oh Lord, thank you for your promise to make me prosper and make me have a life of wealth. And we talk about, you know, we've upended people's life verse um, because that's a promise to Israel, not to every Christian to have material blessings and land and, and, and so forth. And, and so I, I recognize that there might be a, a level of intimidation. I don't want to pray this wrong. So these questions should help restrain us to understand what's going on in the passage to help us inform our prayers. So thinking through this question, what is the promise or truth in this text? What is the truth or promise? What's going on in this text? Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's this. God is faithful. Do you see that? And God is faithful. <laughs> what else? God will not, not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able. Who will not allow you? And the question that we have to answer there is, who is the you? And here in 1 Corinthians, he's talking to the believers in Corinth. And from an understanding of this passage, this is a truth that isn't specific only to the believers in Corinth, but is actually true about believers. So God will not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they were beyond what they are able. What else? God will provide a way of escape from temptation, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Do you see that also? So we're just making observations. What are the promises or what are the truths that kind of demonstrate themselves from the text? For whom is the promise or truth applicable? written to Corinthians, as a truth for believers. How might this promise or truth inform my prayers? Well, I can reflect on the reality of God's faithfulness. I can pray that God would not allow me to be tempted beyond that which I can endure. I can pray that God would provide and that I would take the way of escape when tempted. So an example of what a prayer through this passage might look like is this. Now, I get it. I had time to really ponder and refine this. So if you're going, okay, that's, that's pretty clear. I don't know that I could get there day one. I didn't. <laughs> um, but pray this, God, I am being tempted. I know you are faithful. Or you could say something like, God, today, I suspect there will be temptations. I know you are faithful. Would you please allow your faithfulness to abound in my life right now? I know you do not allow believers to be tempted beyond what they are able and I plead with you now to help me withstand this temptation. I know there is a way of escape from this temptation, and I pray that you would help me to take it. Help me to endure this temptation that I might be pleasing to you and not sin. So that's just a, an example of how you might think through a passage and pray it. Um, don't let your potential concern of praying it wrong keep you from cultivating this discipline. Try, learn, grow in it. It's okay. Um, but seek to do it diligently. And I, I think you'll be blessed in, uh, in doing that. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for godly examples, such as Paul's, of things to give thanks for in others, of things to pray for in one another. And thank you for the ways that even uh, that example draws attention to the virtues that we should pursue and desire recognizing that they will only be realized through your work in us. And so, Father, we, uh, even as pondering uh, the discipline of prayer, recognize just how utterly dependent we are upon you. 
And so we ask for your assistance to grow in this discipline. We ask for the joy and, and pleasure of being ones who do draw near to the throne of grace humbly and dependently and consistently. And I pray that you would help us to only mature all the more in this practice, and that you would be pleased to use our diligence in this area to conform us more into Christ-likeness. What a model of one who prays he was, and Lord, that you would receive all the glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.